This is episode 197 of That Shakespeare Life. Today's episode is brought to you by Experience Shakespeare, the membership area here at That Shakespeare Life that offers digital history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare history. Learn more at castycash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Alan Odinson, director of Odinson Archery. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. To achieve that kind of like crack of lightning that you'd get, because as we all know, like lightning doesn't make a sound. What the sound is, is actually when it hits, when it hits something and like breaking the sound barrier. So it's those kind of like cracks that you'd be looking for in addition to those rolling sounds. And those cracks could have been achieved by the cannonballs at certain moments being dropped or slammed into the wooden track by uh, uh, members of the company waiting for a specific cue, or the tracks themselves would have had different levels, kind of like a staircase, a very long staircase that would have like one track and then the balls would drop to a lower level. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. One of the most powerful aspects of modern day theater performance is the spooky sounds, creaking doors, or the wailing noises of the witches across the moor. These same sound effects were important on stage for Shakespeare's original performances of his plays as well. But as you might imagine, with a decidedly less computer-based generation, the bard's selection of performance sound may not have been based on anything created by Steve Jobs. The technology, however, was no less impressive with implements designed specifically to generate the sound waves of the ocean rain falling down, and even thunder. Here today to share with us some of the history of mechanical sound production and the use of music on stage to set the scene in the early modern theater are our guests and experts in original practice of Shakespeare's plays, Chris Johnston and Alexander Savronsky. Chris Johnston is an actor and musical director, last seen on stage with the American Shakespeare Center for 24 seasons and over 160 roles, including Macbeth in Macbeth, Inabarbus in Antony and Cleopatra, Feste in Twelfth Night, Flamenio in The White Devil. His music directing credits include the world premiere of The Willard Suitcases, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, and many more. Chris is currently pursuing his MFA in Shakespeare and Performance from Mary Baldwin University. Alexander Savronsky is an actor, musician, and composer living in New York City. His career includes creating music and sound, as well as performing in various Broadway, off-Broadway, regional, and international productions. Alexander holds an MFA in classical theater from the Academy for Classical Acting at the Shakespeare Theater of D.C., where he has taught workshops on how Shakespeare utilized music and sound in his plays to connect with his audience. He has also taught that workshop in many other theaters and colleges and universities around the Northeast. You can find him online at links. We'll make available in the show notes. Hello, Chris and Alexander. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having us. Thanks so much. One of the most elaborate sound effects employed by Shakespeare includes the elusive noises of hell. Chris, what noises would have been used to create the sounds of hell? 
That is a really good question. And I'm going to use part of your question to answer it in that you said elusive. It is elusive to find what are the noises of hell because we don't really know for sure. We have some guests, um, you know, we have anecdotes, we have properties lists from these theater companies that can tell us what kind of instruments they had or that they owned. It also depends on whether this play was being performed in an indoor space versus an outdoor space. The sounds would have been different depending on where these plays were performed. Uh, the noises of hell inside the court would have been very different than noises of hell at the Globe or the Rose, per se, an outdoor theater, because the instruments that they would have taken with them would have been different. Maybe even the instruments that they were allowed to play would have been different. And the, um, the amount of instruments, people playing them, they, they all would have varied to more to less, just depending on the situation. Um, and that answer will kind of answer every question that I have moving forward is that it depends on where it was and we don't quite know but we have some guesses and that's what i'm going to give you the noises of hell we imagine it was probably loud especially for the the in, indoor troops they had consorts of musicians and a consort would be uh the, the cittern it would be the violin the bandora a bass viol um these would be like the core instruments that they would have that they were, would be able to make music with and by making music you can also make sound effects with in addition to this, they would also have drums and um, fifes or flutes. These are constantly used in all of Shakespeare's and his contemporaries' plays. So all of these would have been at their disposal to use to make these sounds of hell. They would use fireworks to shoot them off sometimes. Those would be loud bangs. And also fireworks are smelly. So that creates a another layer of whatever this conjuring is that they're doing an interesting anecdote with the conjuring the noises of hell however it sounded they must have done a really good job because there are several anecdotes from several different performances not just one of where suddenly there was an extra demon on the stage like not just you had your core group of actors and then suddenly whatever they did to summon mephistopheles or whatnot Audiences would notice that there was one more actor in the troupe. And this happened more than once. So whatever those sounds were, they were creepy and they were doing it right. And they nailed the scare effect for sure. Yeah. In Romeo and Juliet, one of the most famous scenes involves the actors hearing a bird outside the window. In Act 3, Scene 5, Juliet says, Wilt thou be gone? Is it not yet near day? It was the nightingale and not the lark. End quote. Chris, explain for us how this bird sound would have been made on cue. Surely they didn't have actual birds backstage that were prompted into making these appropriate noises? It would be great if they did, but I don't think that they could train birds that well at that time. They can barely train birds well now. I think it was probably one of their um, flutes, uh, flute-based instruments, like a pipe or something like that, that they would use. They could also use a horn, depending on how they wanted the, the bird to sound. It could be an actor whistling or making a bird sound. I, I've seen that employed in current day. I don't imagine it's hard to do 400 years ago. What's happening in the scene, Lady Capulet and Lord and Lady Capulet and Paris are in the scene before this, I think right before this. And so as they're exiting, we know that they cannot be the actor making the sound. We know that the nurse was on stage about 70 lines before this sound happens. And we know that the nurse is going to enter again about 30 lines after the sound happens. So it would make sense that of all the actors in the troupe, 
maybe it was the nurse who's the closest to entering and is most cued in to listening to what is happening on stage so that they don't miss their cue. Perhaps it was the nurse making the sound of the lark, whether with their mouth through their lips or with their mouth on a pipe or something. I'm really glad you brought up the idea of it being an actor creating the bird sound because that was my first instinct. I just didn't know if that would have happened in early modern theater or not. And I wondered when I come across this line, whether it was a joke about the actor performing this bird sound and them, you know, because they're debating, is it the nightingale? Is it the lark? And so I thought it was kind of an inside joke, maybe in theater of, oh, it's that actor who he can only do one bird call and we use it for all the birds. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really good hypothesis. And I'm sure that it would work uh, very well. It, whoever the actor was playing the nurse in, in any given production, maybe they did only have one sound or maybe they did have a sound that was great and they um, their, their instrument broke and they've left it up once or twice. And then you've got a great punchline for the audience as well. What, what was that? Was that yeah, exactly. Mark, We're know? not sure what bird that was. <laughs> There's a lot of instances in Shakespeare's accounts of actor musicians where the actor will like apologize for their voice or things like that. So there's <laughs> even in, in uh, some plays that predate Shakespeare, there was a, real awareness of the musicians even on stage that would be used to like start the interludes between acts so the idea of like breaking character to talk about like the larger actor musician world and to be able to say like, step out of character and comment on the play to the audience is certainly something that was available in the context of of that period so yeah i don't think that this that would be a, a choice that would be entirely out of line at all what does Balthazar say in um, uh, Much Ado About Nothing? He says, note this before my noting. There's not a note, wait, note this before my notes. There's not a note of mine that's worth the noting. It, this whole concept of breaking the fourth wall, we like to think we invented it, but Shakespeare was doing it well before we did. Oh, yes. In addition to what we just talked about for the bird sounds, there's also the possibility that there were these little clay whistles in the shape of birds that have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, and you basically can put water in them and blow into them. And when the air goes into the chamber, it can move the water around and that can create a warbling effect. And you can actually get like a really realistic bird sound. So it's very possible that Shakespeare's company may have had some of those. Let me try it. I've got one right here for you. I love that. It's got a, it's got to like vibrate right on the, the water's got to go yeah. right on the, uh, the air. They're really it's, cool. Yeah. Let's see if I can do it. Uh, it needs a little more water. <laughs> now, this is not very big as he's pouring the water in this. These are like really small. It looks almost the size of a pipe. Oh, we're, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. Yeah, it's just a little bit of water at a time. You don't want to overdo it. It does look exactly like a bird. Yeah. Can you hear the the The, the, the change in the tone? notes. Yeah, I could... And it is because the idea is, is like you're blowing and it's bubbling. My kids have plastic versions of this that we play with. I had no idea it was an early modern yeah. instrument. <laughs> yeah. Yes. There, there are examples of it actually as far back as ancient Egypt. This is an instrument that has existed for a long, long, long time. And it's less of an instrument, more of like a children's toy or a, spe or a little sound effecty thing. But it's certainly not out of the question that they may have had one or uh, had enjoyed doing that sound. In Antony and Cleopatra, the stage directions for Act 3, Scene 10 say, quote, after they're going in is heard the noise of a sea fight, end quote. What would be included in the sound of a sea fight and how would those noises have been produced? 
That is a great question. I could answer your question with more questions, but I can't give you a solid answer, just like the just like the noises in hell, right? We know what instruments that they had at their disposal, but we aren't entirely sure how they would use them. A few things that we can guess at the time, we can assume that the audience was more aware of what a retreat sounded like on a trumpet or what uh, a battle drum sounded like on the drums. That was redundant, but you get it. Or a royal flourish or whatnot. And each king would have different royal flourishes. It would be like their signature or their, their telephone ring, let's say. We assume that they had this understanding for the most part. And so there would be naval drums that would exist, a naval um, drum rest that you could play that could suggest advancing or retreating, as same as, as trumpets. They would understand what these tuckets were based on their experience of who their audience was. And so the, the war drums could have been any of these identifiable tuckets or flourishes. The thing about Antony and Cleopatra, written in 1606, it's right on the edge of indoor Blackfriars purchasing. So it was performed outdoors, and then later it was performed indoors. So it would have shifted. It could, but that play is at a point in Shakespeare's writing where he's the images are so vibrant that I imagine that there was a little more musicality to what this war sounds would have been than just to the kind of um, hack and slash drums and sword clankings that you would get in a, one of his earlier plays, like Henry the Sixth, Part Three. We've identified ways to make the sound of thunder for Shakespeare's plays, but in The Tempest, Act 1, Scene 1, the stage directions specifically call for lightning as a sound, which surprises me because I think of lightning as being visual as opposed to a noise. So what would have been used to create the sound of lightning? That is a great question. I try. (laughs) Yeah. Alex, you had something really interesting about, you know something about thunder, is that it? Yeah, so generally the sounds that were employed for storms a lot, uh, and this is for the indoor and the outdoor theaters, were these things called thunder runs, which are basically these wooden troughs that existed uh, in the heavens, in that space that would have been above the playing space in the theaters. That was a space where other actors or stagehands or other people and other members of the company could actually go out of view of the audience and either and, and create sound effects or even in certain cases, like lift and lower other actors for suspension and things like that in some early, early plays. But in this case, these thunder runs would have been employed with, with cannonballs of various sizes, it seems, to create different tones. And those, when used on a wooden track, basically, would create this rumbling sound. And the heavens themselves, that room, would kind of serve as a large echo chamber. So for the audience underneath it, it would sound like this large, booming, thunderous roll going on above their hand, uh, above their heads, which I can only imagine if you're in the outdoor theaters when that was happening, you can't imagine, have, but like some people lifting up their hands to wonder if it's raining or going to. Uh, it seems like it was quite an, an effective effect. It was used in the indoor and outdoor theaters. And to achieve that kind of like crack of lightning that you'd get, because as we all know, like lightning doesn't make a sound. What the sound is, is actually when it hits when it hits something and like breaking the sound barrier. So it's those kind of like cracks that you'd be looking for in addition to those rolling sounds. And those cracks could have been achieved by the cannonballs at certain moments being dropped or slammed into the wooden track by uh, uh, members of the company waiting for a specific cue, or the tracks themselves would have had different levels, kind of like a staircase, a very long staircase that would have like one track and then the balls would drop to a lower level and continue. And those drops could give you really nice accents. 
There's actually a, a theater in in London, the Bristol Old Vic, that has still a working Thunder Run. And there's a beautiful video online that you can easily find if you're interested in seeing and hearing how they worked. An interesting thing with Thunder is uh, reading through journals and accounts of people at the time mentioning lightning and the sound of lightning, not at, uh, on stage, but just experiencing storms. They would refer to the sound of lightning as horns, which is strange to me because as a uh, Alex just mentioned, I hear cracks, you know, that crack of the sound barrier, but it's strange how multiple people write about a horn representing lightning and so i wonder if that could be part of the experience of the theater that when we're doing these thunder runs to accentuate the lightning making it something different a crack with a horn or something like that just filling the oral space a little bit more with something different we also had in shakespeare's time Horns were a little different than what we think of today. I mean, uh, in Shakespeare's time, there was an instrument called a cornado, which was basically the modern equivalent of like kind of a trumpet, that kind of a sound. But it was very, very high. It could achieve very high pitches. So I can imagine with like the lower sounds of a thunder run, with that being layered with like a high pitch on a trumpet or a cornado could be really quite effective and disturbing. Also, just to throw this out there, because this is something that I was surprised when I learned it a while back, is that what a lot of people think as an early theater effect of like the thunder sheet, these large metal sheets that mm. a lot of theaters or people will like rattle backstage to create that kind of uh, rumble. Those were actually not in use until the 1700s in England. So Shakespeare was not employing those, which actually surprised me when I first heard about it. So it's really about the thunder runs, those metal, uh, rather the, the wooden tracks with the, the cannonballs rather than like a metal thunder sheet. And thunder sheets are weird. Just, I mean, <laughs> like having performed with uh, in original practice styles for the past 15 plus years. And when it comes time to create the soundscape for a storm, the thunder sheet is going to be one of the last things that I go to, having used it many times. And it's just because it sounds like somebody's shaking a piece of metal backstage. And it's not very dramatic as opposed to a kettle drum and a bowling ball and up, up in the heavens above people's heads where they can't see it. Like that stuff is fills the space and it's loud. A thunder sheet's just like a... It's just weird. There's also something really cool that I love about these this whole discussion about sound effects in Shakespeare was that they're, they're localized, right? We're not talking mm -hmm. about everything coming from behind the stage or in the tiring house or in the musician's balcony. Uh, things are actually placed all over. The sounds of hell, going back to Chris's comment from before, also could have included oboes that would actually have been played by musicians under the stage. There's examples of that being written about for the ghost in Hamlet uh, and Anthony and Cleopatra, the sounds of hell. So these type of um, double reeded instruments that had this really eerie quality to them being echoed in a wooden res resonance chamber could be really effective. And also, you know, we're, we're talking about a theater, obviously, goes without saying, without speakers, without a sound system. So the idea of localized sound becomes really important. So the fact that Shakespeare could place people under the stage, could place people above the audience, could put things behind the actors is just really, really cool. And something that I think must have added to that really inclusive experience that the audience had. And mentioning those oboes, play, you know, the hoboys or whatnot that they would use for these these sound cues, it plays into the idea that the audiences were kind of trained to understand different sounds, like the like the tuckets and the flourishes. When there were hobo uh, hoboys playing their oboes down 
below or behind, those happen at certain kinds of, of moments in theater, haunting, melancholy or morose parts of theater. So the audience, when they hear certain instruments, they think, okay, now the story's taking me here. I know where I'm going now. Not necessarily like hitting them over the head with it, but just like when we're, we're watching something on whatever streaming platform you might watch and somebody brings in the, the violins during a, a lovely romantic moment, it's going to affect people. And it's, it's almost always the same thing that we listen to. We don't quite notice it necessarily, but it's always there. You have sounds that are part of convention almost the, the you know the sound of your computer turning on or the sound of a transition to a commercial on a tv show there are similar i don't want to call them tropes but similar signals auditory signals for an early modern audience as well yeah well i think one of those really one of my favorite examples of those are like royal flourishes right so these are uh, a blast of musical statement from horns that would kind of signify to the audience uh, if the costumes for whatever reason didn't do the job or didn't do the job enough whether they were doing an indoor performance or outdoor performance or on the road or at court sometimes they were limited with, with what scenic and costume elements they could have so the royal flourishes would tell you this is a king this is a queen this is someone of royalty right so a really good example is in the Scottish play, when Duncan comes on stage, he's introduced and supported in the folio with royal flourishes every time he enters and exits. So the audience gets trained, as Chris was saying, to kind of say, okay, whenever there's a king on stage, we accept, we expect this kind of entrance and exit music. And one thing that's really cool is that when Macbeth becomes crowned, he never hears a royal flourish. There's not a single one in the text. And it adds to that character's uneasiness and certainly what the, what it tells the audience of in terms of this character's right to sit on the throne. And it's uh, even more supported in the end of the play when at the very end of the play in the last couple pages after Malcolm becomes crowned, uh, you get three royal flourishes for Malcolm just to kind of drive the point home that this is probably a choice that Shakespeare is making actively rather than just a, a mistake in the printing of sorts. So, Alexander, I want to ask you specifically about music in Shakespeare's plays, because over 30 times across his works, there's just simply this instruction that says music plays or the stage directions will just say music. And there's no specific indication about what kind of music or even like a specific song. So I want to ask you, would this be music that Shakespeare wrote for the play? Or did he have someone like a composer that he worked with? Or what kind of music is he talking about? Well, throughout Shakespeare's career, we have evidence that he worked with some composers, certainly, to uh, write music for different performances at court, specifically like The Tempest is a really good example of that. There's also actor musicians in Shakespeare's own troupe. An actor named Will Kemp, for instance, was a very famous jigger dancer and potentially a instrumentalist as well and singer. A lot of Shakespeare's career actually involves the use of actor musicians and with increasing usage from the beginning of the plays to the end of his career, that they get actually more popular. And the role of an actor musician starts as becoming something without lines, um, someone, a character that you never meet again, that just serves a function to come on and play. And by the end of Shakespeare's career, they are central characters like Ariel and the Tempest or Festy and things like that, or Autolycus and Winter's Tale, that you get these fully fleshed out characters. So with that in mind, when you think of the phrase music plays, th that music could come from a variety of places, depending on when in the careers that, that is indicated. But I think it's more interesting to think about what the function of the music is in that moment. Because if, if it was important to Shakespeare or the actors of Shakespeare that compiled the first folio 
to say like it was really important that this song specifically be heard, they would have written that down like they did for other moments in different plays. But when it just says music plays, it tells me that it's probably more important that the function of music be be focused on that 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 is there to to lift the the text in a way or provide support in some way. That music itself, regardless of what's being played, has a power. For instance, like in King Lear, when when Lear is waking up. And uh, the doctors have music played to help him transition into into this state of of wakingness to when he meets his daughter Cordelia again and they're reunited. There's music underneath that. And probably you don't really want necessarily to be playing a popular song that the audience could sing along to at that moment because that's not the point of that moment. So the music in that moment would have been supportive, more likely than not something that was maybe written by the musician that was playing it at the time or something that was written by whatever composer Shakespeare was working with. But certainly the function of the music in that moment is probably more important than the actual tune itself. So a whole lot more similar to something like a soundtrack or when we think of you know, film composers having like a score that goes along with the action. You know, I think of John Williams or James Horner as modern points of reference. They had this kind of function or theater role in the 16th century where it was like, we need a dramatic song here, or we need a, you know, we need the background music in these places. In some cases, yeah, it wasn't, uh, I would say, as widely used as film scoring uh, is now or even theatrical underscoring is now. But certainly there's definitely evidence um, as in the examples that we've talked about of moments where there is a scene that continues with important text that needs to be heard and there's music being played underneath it to support that. Sometimes that could you know, be, be utilized in certain ways, absolutely. Now, you mentioned popular music, and I think of things like ballads or folk songs from the 16th and 17th century. Do we know of any instances in Shakespeare's plays where he did use popular songs to advance the action on stage during a production? Yeah, we do, actually. This is one of my favorite things to learn about and to talk about. I really, I love it. Kind of the way that we have started using a lot of jukebox musicals in uh, modern theater. Shakespeare was doing that hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Uh, a really good example of this, there's examples of this in many plays, but one of my favorites is in Twelfth Night, when there's the scene where uh, Andrew and Toby and Festy and Mariah are all singing and dancing and having a grand old time and drinking. And then Malvolio comes in and shuts down the party. All the songs that they're actually singing in those scenes, um, when they're all singing together, are all ballads that would have been popular during Shakespeare's time, during the the time that those plays were performed, which to me indicates that that is an, an invitation to the audience of inclusion. Because in the world of uh, Shakespeare's performance without a fourth wall, that is a an environment where the audience is free to participate in various ways. And certainly by having a, a song that you're actively knowing that the audience knows, that is, that's, in my opinion, just an invitation for a sing-along. And certainly with that idea, it really helps the moment, the, those moments in that play. For instance, if you get the whole audience joining in in song and part of that party, then Mal, when Malvolio comes in, he's not just shutting down the party on stage, he's shutting down the party in the whole theater. And now you've created an environment where the audience is just as annoyed at Malvolio for shutting down the party because they were part of it. They, they shut down our fun, not the fun we were watching someone else have. So it, it allows the audience actually to be more complicit in the next bit of action that happens against Malvolio because we were part of the fun. So the use of popular song is not just for entertainment purposes, like to say like, oh, wouldn't it be fun if they just sang along here, or if we had like a, a song everyone knew? It very often uh, is used actually to bring the audience into the story and in a way that allows for more connection to the 
to the characters and more connection to the action on stage to actually advance the story and the audience's experience. Shakespeare also used popular songs in a way to connect the audience not only to the present, but also to the past. In the Willow song usage in Othello, Desdemona describes her experience with the song and her her relationship with the song as being one kind of from her childhood. She says that she had a her mother had a maid called Barbara or Barbary, and um, she used to sing this song. So it seems like it's a song of like the an older generation. And for that song, this Willow song that's included that ha- that Shakespeare has Desdemona reference in the play and sing a little bit of, that's an actual song that had been published and was popular. And when I say published, I just mean published as a broadside ballad about 20, 30 years before Othello premieres. So this would, in essence, had been a popular song of the last generation. So when Shakespeare's audience is there watching Othello and hears Desdemona uh, reference and start singing this song from her childhood, it's very possible they had the exact same experience with that same song, thinking that it was from their childhood as well. And suddenly you're making a connection to the character on stage rather than watching them have an experience, you're having the same experience with them. I know we would also love to dive in and explore this further and, and learn more about the, not just the popular ballads, but the sound effects and how they were used on stage. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we start with when we want to learn more? First two that I go to is Shakespeare in Music, David Lindley. It's great. Talks, It's just great. He breaks it down, talks about a lot of things that we've been mentioning and how music fits into that world. Another song is the um, Shakespeare Songbook by Duffin, Ross Duffin. A great resource, a great resource to get an idea of what melodies could have sounded like when they were performed on the stage or what they could have sounded like instead of what we think they were on stage. Meaning some songs we don't have the exact melodies to. And so Duffin has done his best to assume a popular song of the time that that melody could have been or that rhyming structure could have worked toward. And then the third one that I really like, and it has nothing to do with music, but it's the, uh, the Bedford Companion to Shakespeare. It talks about life in England during this time and what it was like to for the printers to print these papers and what it was like to, for the clothes that people wore. It's, it's a really great in-depth read on understanding the kind of the mentality of people around the area or, or how they would start to get their mentality based on the circumstances around living life. And I just think that's a great way to try to approach what music would have been when people are living in a certain way. I mean, music represents how people are existing in a certain time or how they're feeling. And if you have a better idea of what their day-to-day is, you can maybe have a better idea of what they're writing about or why they're singing about what they're writing about. To piggyback on on that, I love also the Shakespeare Songbook by Duffin. I think it's a wonderful resource. The other thing that, I, that it does for me is it the index of it makes the reader acutely aware of all the references to music that are not necessarily as obvious that you might realize by going through the index in this book that there might be a lot of musical references where characters are just using it as text and you don't realize that they're quoting a song lyric because we don't have the same relationship to that music that we do now, obviously. So it's a great book that will kind of explode a lot of the plays and realize that there's a lot more music in them that is not sung, that is merely referenced, that can only enhance the experience of the play. I can only imagine what would happen if the modern audience knew that there was a moment where someone's like quoting a Beatles song and that makes the audience having a reaction in the same way that Shakespeare's use of it will. But when we've lost that experience with our connection to those original songs, then we lose a bit of the author's intention. So this book is great to kind of uncover that. The other ones that I love, there's a trilogy of books 
by the author John H. Long, the trilogy of books called Shakespeare's Use of Music. And they're broken up into three different sections, the comedies, the histories, and the tragedies, I believe. It's a wonderful, really in-depth discovery of uh, different, different varieties of of usage of music in the plays. There's also by Naylor, another book called Shakespeare, Shakespeare's Music. And it's kind of similar to the Duffin book in the sense of trying to kind of connect a lot of the tunes with an original or as close to they can, an original tune to the, the songs in the plays. Another helpful resource in that world. And as far as the special effects and things like that, that we talked about today, one of my favorite books in that department is by Bloomsbury, they do this book called Shakespeare's Theaters and the Effect of Performance. And it's a book that has a lot of essays by a variety of people edited by Tiffany Stern and some other people. Mm. Um, the Arden Shakespeare puts it out. And it's a really great in-depth look at not only the physical performance effects, like special effects, like blood effects and things like that, and sea battles and fight scenes, but also some of the special effects that would have been utilized sonically as well. Those are excellent resources for sure. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. We will put links to these resources as well as some of the visual content, like that video from the Bristol Old Vic and others that you can see in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you jump over there to see that. Alexander and Chris, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So this choice would be in addition to those. Ooh, I'm going to have to assume and hope and pray that I have some sort of instrument with me because as any composer will say, like it needs something to play. I was expecting at least one of you to suggest that you would fashion an instrument out of the books. I was, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I guess that's, that's pretty good. I guess you could make some type of percussive instrument out of a book, I guess, but (laughs) assuming that I have some type of instrument, I'd probably bring along some, some type of uh, complete works of Bach or something like that, that would uh, entertain me musically as well. Certainly uh, instrumental music is, is as large a part of my, of my love as, as literature is. So something, something with sheet music would probably do it for me. (laughs) <laughs> that's, that's great even if you couldn't play it you just look at it and be tempted or craft a, a piano out of coconuts or something i guess that's so cool. I mean, i'm, I'm yeah. assuming we have a lot of time you could pull out your 16th yeah. century actor skills and and whistle bach on the there you go there you go is that, that's is that's that like... the nightingale no it was bach <laughs> come on <laughs> yeah i don't know what book i would i really don't know what book i would take there's there's a lot of good options. I think I would take something like it would have to be a complete works because then I would have more than one title to read, which is good. So like a complete works of of Poe or something like that would be great. It's different than the Bible and just, and a, just a little light, up, uplifting reading for your. Well, what what am I going to do when it's Halloween and I'm on a desert island and I have nothing you gotta, spooky to read? You got to be prepared. I see. I guess I could read Macker's Double Double Toilet or whatnot but <laughs> you you'd be you'd be well set up there both of you had i think i could give out awards for most inventive desert island choice for sure so so what's next for you guys what are you working on now that you're excited about right now one of the things that i'm doing that i've really been enjoying lately is uh, teaching a lot of music i'm a multi-instrumentalist and i've been really enjoying helping other people via zoom or in person learning a lot of instruments um, in addition to that professionally speaking i'm doing a lot of music direction uh, helping other theater companies with music that they've written for their projects, help them flesh that out in other ways. So uh, there's something really, really lovely right now about not really focusing on my composition and just kind of being in service 
to either someone else's work or helping someone else find their way with a new instrument. I'm really enjoying that right now. That's lovely. I myself am also um, teaching music lessons for the first time, and it's it's great. You know, I've I've been performing for um, almost two decades now, and I've stopped to go back to school and um, get a master's in what we basically just talked about. And uh, now I'm teaching lessons on the side, and it's lovely to be able to share. Like Alex Alexander, I'm a multi instrumentalist, so we're doing all kinds of different instruments, and it's 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 really challenging and rewarding. I'm also working on a project where I will be releasing um, the volumes of Shakespeare's songs with as close to the original melodies as, as I can come up with, with a little bit of like a modern twist. But I mean, the original melodies and then modern instruments is kind of what I want to do. The first album, Vesti, is almost done, and I should have that out probably in February. That sounds like exciting stuff coming from both of you. Both Chris and Alexander have graciously provided links to their respective websites where you can see some of their work and keep up with them. So be sure you go to the show notes to find those. Chris and Alexander, thank you so much for taking us inside the world of sound for William Shakespeare's Theater and telling us all about sound effects and instruments. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed our show, be sure to share it with your friends and family that might like to explore the 16th and 17th century England as Shakespeare would have lived it. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. The video version of today's episode where you can see Chris playing the clay bird pipe as well as bonus archival images that coordinate with our topic today is available inside the streaming app for That Shakespeare Life. Our entire collection of documentaries, animated plays, virtual tours, and video versions of our podcast is just one of the many benefits you can unlock as a member of That Shakespeare Life. Our membership area features digital history activity kits that walk you through how to play games from Shakespeare's plays, cook recipes popular in his lifetime, and complete crafts like making your own iron gall ink or creating your own tutor soap you can download a free sample from one of our most popular activity kits right from our website or go ahead and sign up to join us inside for this week's episode at cassidycash.com slash member that's cassidycash.com slash member i'll see you inside that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed our show, be sure to share it with your friends and family that might like to explore the 16th and 17th century England as Shakespeare would have lived it. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.